0: Welcome to Decapod, the podcast for the Roberts Lab NPRB funded project investigating the effects of bitter crab disease and temperature changes on southeast Alaskan tanner crabs. All right, so today I virtually have with me Laura Slater in Kodiak, Alaska. Um, She's a crab research biologist at the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in the Division of Commercial Fisheries, and she's also a PhD student. Um, at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, at the College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences. Hello, Laura. (laughs) Hi, Grace. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. All right, so um, we can just kind of jump around wherever you want to start. I don't know if you want to start with anything, Um, any intro about your job and how um, you came to the decision of also getting a Ph.D., or having a job or?
1: Yeah, I can kind of start at the beginning. So I've been working at Fish and Game for the last 13 years. And when I started, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to build a long-term project with my colleagues. Uh, at the time, that was Doug Pengelly and Joel Webb. And so the three of us worked together to create a sampling program for both snow and tanner crabs in the eastern Bering Sea. Uh, We collected samples from the NOAA trial survey that went out every summer, and we got samples from across the survey distribution of both crab stocks for 10 years. And so ever since then, we've been using different parts of that long-term project. The data collection for that happened from 2007 through 2016. We've been using different portions of that to address specific questions, and to evolve into side projects essentially and this NPRB funded project used archived samples from that 10-year study as well as collecting additional samples for another two years in 2017 and 2018 to answer some more questions about the mating dynamics of snow crab in the Bering Sea. Well, we take measures of the stored sperm that the females hold after mating in their internal sperm storage organs, the spermatheca. We've been taking measures of those, just as like the, the weight of the quantity and processing those for estimated sperm cell counts. We also wanted to look at the genetic side of that and so have some context of how many different males were contributing that material and how that varied across space and time and across female shell condition. Um, since snow crab have a terminal molt at maturity, their first mating season is also, you know, the, uh, occurs when they molt to maturity. And after that point, they remain in the same shell until they die. And mm-hmm. so there's, we, we have some context of how long that they've been an adult crab and how many mating seasons that they've been around for in terms of participating or not. And so we use that as a context for kind of a opportunity essentially for different males, um, different mating. So we use the archive samples from that 10 year study we had preserved in ethyl uh, alcohol to have that kind of long term picture. And we used about a thousand samples of those wow. selected across the different areas and the different years. And then because we hadn't collected embryos, we also wanted to get an idea of the clutch paternity and to, so again, how many males are contributing to the sperm used to fertilize the embryos in the clutch. And the snow crab, at the size that they reach in the Bering Sea, They generally produce a clutch of about 35,000 to 45,000 embryos. And so we sampled within that clutch to try to test how many different male genotypes, you know, could be present. Mm -hmm. Um, So to get to that piece took the additional sampling. But it's been really interesting. It's been really great. The use of the genetics tool has been really new for me. I didn't have background in that through my education. And so, working in collaboration with the Gene Conservation Lab, which is also a branch of the Division of Commercial Fisheries for Alaska Department of Fish and Game, has been really great, and they've been wonderful at being, you know, partners on the project and helping to make the decisions to get the best data Mm -hmm. and kind of the, the timeline to work that through. And I've learned a lot about every method, every technique has its um, benefits and drawbacks. And so it's mm-hmm. been nice too, just to learn like what an amazing tool it is to have really empirical information on how many different individuals contribute to the embryos, contribute to the mating history in the sperm reserves, but also understanding like what some of the, the artifacts of the genetics process are and some of the data quirks to overcome on the back end of cleaning up the data and making sense of the data, running it all through. So I've really enjoyed learning about it and it's been really helpful to have such a strong team to help make those decisions as we kind of reach each uh, decision point through the process. So that's been good.
0: <laughs> nice, that's cool. So how long has this, um, or how long, when did you start your PhD program, and how far into your career were you?
1: I started my PhD program in the fall of 2015. At that point, we were still collecting data each year, Mm -hmm. but I had a big enough group, a big enough team in the Kodiak office to continue to oversee the sample collection, the data processing sides of the project. And as that has fluctuated with time, we've also cut back on the getting of new data. We've kind of put a pause on getting more samples until we've had time to really make sense of the data set that we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joel Webb worked at Fish and Game for a number of years, for more than a decade. And while he worked at Fish and Game, he also completed his PhD. And he had many of the same team members on his committee as I have on my committee. And so he used a lot of the same data set from that long-term study, and his focus was addressing and understanding the egg side of the equation, and so the fecundity information. And he was really successful at that. So I wanted to take that model that he set and learn our program (laughs) and really focus more on my quantitative skills to be able to answer the same answer different questions that we have still on the same topic of reproductive potential mating dynamics but focusing on the sperm side of the equation and so tying in that aspect of male availability especially because the commercial fishery is prosecuted on large male crab of the population and just tying that together to both to understand the fundamental population dynamics of the stock in the Bering Sea, comparing that to other stocks that have been studied in both Canada. So in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean and also in Japan, um, the Sea of Japan essentially Hmm. doing some comparisons of what are the processes in the Bering Sea? What are we seeing in terms of measured sperm reserves? And then how do those relate to other areas, and how do that relate to sex ratios, which are ultimately related to male availability? And so it's nice that this is a very applied research mm-hmm. addressing management needs and management questions. And it was really great to have that model that Joel went through and really used the team of his committee to help put these questions into context and Develop the tool set to really make sense of, of the data itself. And so I've been following that same track. Um, it's been a semester in Juneau, taking courses and learning R, which has been really useful, I've really enjoyed that as a platform. And so at this point I have completed my coursework, the rest of my coursework I did through distance in Kodiak. Mm-hmm. I have my dissertation proposal is all approved and finalized Yay. which is and I completed my comprehensive exam this last year. So at this point I'm a candidate for the PhD and I have what's left is the writing of the three chapters and the defense. So I have that kind of broken out over the next two years to look at graduating in spring of twenty twenty two.
0: Wow. Oh my goodness that's exciting <laughs>
1: yeah it is it's is. it's great to see it get to this point so this NPRB project uh, the genetics of the mating dynamics is one chapter of that PhD and it's been really great to again have that group and have the, the uh, structure that NPRB puts into place to really help that keep on track and mm-hmm. have the timelines there has been really helpful as well
0: what are what are your other two chapters
1: they're both looking at the sperm reserves of the snow crab so spatial spatiotemporal trends from that 10-year study uh, the first chapter is focused on just understanding foundational relationships and so how does measured weight of the spermathecal load compared to the sperm cell count, um, looking at that relationship, looking at how, what some of the factors are that are kind of ancillary data in the picture. And so we look at presence of fresh ejaculate and so evidence of recent mating and how does that compare to the overall load. so just really understanding that the data themselves mm-hmm. before taking that. And so that's the first chapter. And the second chapter is taking that up to make population level inferences. And so the second chapter is really comparing it to population trends, uh, looking at the spatiotemporal piece of the puzzle um, and developing the sex ratio indices to look at relationships between Variability in sperm reserves and some of these other factors. Um, the other thing with snow crab, the other piece of this puzzle is that in the Bering Sea, depending on bottom temperature, snow crab can produce a clutch either every year or every two years. And so they have an annual or a biennial reproductive tempo. And so trying to tease that piece out of it because it relates to sperm demand. So in the big picture, it's essentially looking at whether the female have adequate sperm to fertilize a subsequent clutch, uh, how often the females need to return to mating. So essentially, if the stored sperm can be used throughout a crab's adult life, and so through essentially the production of three to five clutches, then they can bypass that mating in any Mm -hmm. given season over that time. But if they don't have sufficient sperm for that need, um, the production of those clutches, then they're participating each year. And so then that comes at a cost both in terms of, are the males available where they are and just energetics of mating. So just trying to understand that context in a broad sense, do we see different patterns in different locations? The Bering Sea is so huge. And there's all these differences in the distribution of where large male snow crab are versus the females that are molting into maturity. So there's differences in where they're located. There's also differences in the timing of when they reach adulthood. so from one strong cohort or usually set of cohorts, and so there's like kind of two to three strong years of successful crab starts, recruits we'll call them. Because the females reach that terminal molt about two to three years before the males do, they, they're at a smaller size and they just uh, reach that adult point sooner, then there's offsets and timing. Mm-hmm. so. There's just a lot of considerations, a lot of things that just are occurring naturally that could be creating variability and a lot of things based on temperature um, and the sperm need. So for the number of clutches that a crab will produce, annual versus biennial is tied to the cold pool, presence of the cold pool, essentially. So there's just a lot of um, complicated pieces to the puzzle to make sense of the big story. So our eyes are on the big story. So understanding how this population works, what it needs, um, and then seeing essentially where that is more successful than in other places. There is a complicated question. but yeah. Tingling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So, what led to the development of this project? Why did you all propose this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we wanted some empirical information. So while we can talk about how much stored sperm is enough for a given female snow crab in the Bering Sea based on some assumptions about it takes, you know, that the sperm to egg ratio is about 70 to one and some assumptions about how many eggs a female produces for each clutch, which varies with the female size. We also wanted to then relate that to on the ground, what does that mean in terms of access and relations with males? Um, And so it's bridging that missing piece. And so understanding not only what we measure from the females, but then also trying to make that connection explicit with how many males it takes to get that, what that looks like across the again the, the, the different areas of the Bering Sea. So when we set up this project we knew that it would be very informative to have that genetics piece and so even when this project first started in 2007 we were preserving that snow crab have pairs from Atheca and so we were preserving for a subset of the crab that we were processing we were preserving one of those two from a crab in alcohol, because we knew we wanted a genetics piece to the big picture questions that we had. But finding the team to put that together was difficult. And part of what made that difficult was crab genetics is not as advanced as genetics on other commercially important fish stocks. And finding um, a gene lab willing to take on the marker development component of the project was a big piece. And so that was an explicit separate objective for our project. Microsatellite markers had been used for snow crab on prior studies, but we didn't know if those same markers would also then be able to detect tanner crab and hybrid crab. And we wanted to know because hybrid crab are present in the Bering Sea, we wanted to really know whether these female crab were mating with other snow crab or were mating with hybrid crab or were mating with tanner crab. And so we really needed that species identification part of the puzzle. Eventually, we got there using the SNP markers, which were successful at distinguishing those levels, the combination of one nuclear SNP and one mitochondrial SNP but putting those pieces in place and understanding how to get the species level information and the individual kind of how many unique contributors are coming into the mix piece of the puzzle um, that took a lot of time and a lot of development and so it took a group who has really had the ability to be a part of that stage of the process And again, since that wasn't inherent in my background and my expertise and skill set, it really needed the gene lab people who have been so instrumental in making this successful to really jump in as a partner on the project and not just to process samples. Um, And so lining that up took years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so once that piece was in place, then it was just a matter of pulling together the proposal and um, pushing, putting it in, um, which yeah, and ever since then, it's it's gone really good.
0: Um, so your projects are focusing on snow crab, but you just mm-hmm. mentioned hybrids and also Tanner crab. So what can you explain what the hybrids are and um, what you know about that and. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the Bering Sea is an anomaly in some sense in that it's. The one place that we know of where both snow and tander crab, which are closely related species, overlap in their distribution. Because they are so closely related, so they're both within the genus Pianicetes, and so we have a for snow crab and Bairdi for tander crab. Because they are so closely related, they are able to successfully hybridize, and their offspring also appear to be reproductively viable. And so the hybrid crab are also able to um, participate in mating, produce embryos, and even have fertilized embryos. Um, They definitely have higher variability and mating success. And so their reproductive output is lower on the whole. And this is what I've observed during the 10 year of bringing back these samples and looking at them in the lab. Um, But there's, you know, the assumption that there's presence of F2 generations um, in the Bering Sea. And so generations of hybrids um, that resulted from, that are offspring of a hybrid. So because we knew the hybrids are present and because there are definitely management implications of hybrids in the Bering Sea, we wanted some Evidence or context of how frequently this may be occurring when looking at the big picture of the mating dynamics. And so that was definitely a piece that we didn't want to leave not addressed through this project. It's been an interesting one, so I'll kind of talk through the results, the findings of our project a little bit. Uh, one of our objectives was looking at the parentage, and so which species created the hybrid crab that we tested. So we had DNA, we had tissue samples from about 300 female hybrid crab from our long-term study. And we ran those in terms of the nuclear DNA to essentially confirm that they were hybrid crab and then the mitochondrial DNA to look at the maternal lineage so we aren't saying for the exact hybrid crab that we sampled that the mom of that crab was either a snow crab or a tanner crab, but that the cross that happened at whatever generation first created the cross that that mating occurred between either a female snow crab or a female tanner crab. And so we're kind of careful to, to, to recognize that that's a lineage statement. So what we found that it was pretty equal. So in our results, approximately half of the crab had a a snow crab maternal lineage and about half had a tanner crab maternal lineage. And we were really surprised by that because the previous study using about 50 snow crab and their samples were male. I'm sorry, they used 50 male hybrid crab. Um, In those samples they were predominantly the result of a snow crab female and a Tanner crab male and because of the sexual size dimorphism between male and female crab for both snow crab and tander crab where the male is always larger we thought that direction of mating made sense so that logically with the larger tanner crab and a smaller snow crab so it was surprising to us it was very interesting to us that this kind of went against a convention that was um assumed and and pretty broadly assumed to be the mechanism for how hybrid crab were coming into the bering sea um, occurring within the bering sea uh so it was very nice finding. Um, and we looked at that a little bit further. We, we just looked broadly at the locations of where our female hybrid crab came from. And it was interesting in that effect too, because in general, where we saw the snow crab maternal lineage was in those areas where female mature snow crab were more common than female mature tater crab and then vice versa. So there was definitely a, space, a spatial piece to this story, but it was also good recognition to understand that available mates can, for a Tanner Crab, include either Tanner Crab or Snow Crab, and available mates for Snow Crab can include either Snow or Tanner Crab. Um, and that it was until one direction that was creating the hybrids in the first place. And also to note, I mean, for either species, available mates could include hybrid crab. Um, so it's just interesting. Another part of the project, and so for about 1,000 samples, we were able to genotype the sperm reserves. And so we did this in terms of the layers of mating seasons present in the stored sperm for the female snow crab. In addition to looking at the microsatellites to to estimate a minimum number of mates present based on the genotypes, we also looked at the SNPs for those sperm layers and detected non-snow crab contributors to the stored mating history at very, very low um, occurrence. And so even though hybridization is occurring, The results from from our samples and again this is kind of across time and space was that that contributed less than less than a percent of the total mates that we detected so uh it isn't happening with frequency which is also good to know (laughs) it kind (laughs) of gives a little bit more of um comfort i guess in the knowledge of how the population is sustaining itself and You would assume that a female crab would select from her own species more than from another species when that option was available and so overall it's an indicator of the successful population and availability of mates um, which is good i can talk through some of the other take-home messages from the project um yeah We are still in the process of making sense of the data and putting together our final conclusions for the project. We're developing the final report and finalizing our data sets. Um, The whole process is a lot of kind of small points to plug into place. And at this point, some of our generalizations for our main project objectives So for the mating history piece, just looking at the sperm present and the sperm reserves, we see that overall there's evidence of anywhere from zero to four mates within the spermatica, and that's a minimum number because we make assumptions that males can contribute two alleles at each marker. Although we know that some individuals, males and females, are homozygous and contributing just one allele. And so our estimates of the number of mates is conservative in the sense that it could be higher than our estimate is providing. When looking at that piece, we had data across three different markers. And so we could look for consistency in the number of mates estimated at those markers. And we also accounted for the female DNA. And so we found a lot of contamination between the female alleles also being present in the pooled stored sperm allele Hmm. um, combinations or mixes. And so that made sense to us in the sense because what's stored in the spermatheca, uh, there's also secretions that the female provides to maintain that stored sperm. And even in the process of removing the storage sperm, there's definitely some scraping of the epithelial of the spermatheca organ. And so it wasn't surprising to us. And prior studies had also removed the contribution of the female. And so we made sure that that was done. Um, I think what was interesting to us is that we expected the old shell females and so the females that had the opportunity of, to participate in more than one mating season to have higher number of mates than the new shell females. And that was there, but it was there very slightly. Like Mm. it, it was just like a little bit of an offset in numbers and not a very striking offset in numbers. So that was very interesting to us. And we're still working through why that might be in terms of was all of the sperm from the first mating season extruded in the fertilization of the clutch that was carried, you know, either in the first year or in the year that we sampled the females in their old shell condition. Mm-hmm. And then new mating replenished that, or what are some of the mechanisms behind that Are the mating? Um, so we still have questions about what might be underlying that trend but it was very interesting to us Um, most females had two mates in their sperm mating history and then you know followed by essentially one mate followed by three mates and so very few occurrences of either zero mates or four mates and we haven't had a chance yet to look at how that segregates out by Year and by area and things like that. We've separated the Bering Sea up into six regions, and so we've broken the expanse of the Eastern Bering Sea into uh, southeast, central, and northwest areas, and then divided those essentially longitudinally based on the bathymetry of the Eastern Bering Sea, where the middle domain occurs up to 100 meters water depth and then the outer domain curves between 100 and 200 meters water depth and so these are well established segregations of the Bering Sea and we're applying those to look at the spatial patterns and any variability in the results amongst those those six regions. Looking at the paternity of the embryos piece, um, we had 100 crab that we looked at for that piece and we sampled 20 embryos from each clutch to ensure that we had adequate power to detect multiple paternity when it was present. Uh, We found that in general single paternity occurred and there was very little occurrence of multiple paternity but multiple paternity was slightly, occurred slightly more often for the old-shell females than for the new-shell females. One of the analysis quirks that we're working through on the paternity piece is that we process samples, we processed embryos individually. So we have individual level genotypes for each embryo. When we've compared our results and our approach for processing the data to other studies, the, other studies that we've been able to find have pooled the DNA for the embryos from a clutch. And so in this adding of unique alleles exercise it makes a difference whether you take all the possible alleles from a clutch and subtract out the two known female alleles as contributing or if you take at the individual level and account for a maternal allele as one of the two and assign the remaining allele to the male even when it overlaps with what the maternal allele is. And so we have very slightly different results um, in the multiple paternity piece based on which approach we use to estimate uh, minimum sires to the clutch. So we're also working on deciding which of those is more valid essentially based on the combination of the three markers um, and some of the known artifacts with the dna amplification process and uh, recognizing that our embryos we didn't even though we knew the clutch as a whole had progressed to an eyed embryo stage in the selected embryos, we didn't do that under a microscope. And so we didn't confirm that our selected embryos were fertilized. Um, So there could certainly be some sources where if we took it on the individual embryo basis, where those are a match with the mom, but aren't indicating another male contributor for the genotype. So it's interesting. There's a lot of little things to work through and make decisions on and inform what our conclusions are, essentially. There were were learning steps along the way. Everything from the selection of the microsatellite markers, the selection of the SNP markers, some of those early validation steps. We actually ran five markers, but there's a lot of variability in two of those markers that we didn't believe were real and Mm -hmm. so we ended up for the analysis dropping two out of the five that we ran and we did this very interesting side test and this was something that zach ran with we weren't sure if we were going to run pooled embryo samples like other projects had done before us or if we were going to run them at the individual level and there were trade-offs between those two approaches. So if you run them as pooled embryos, you could detect you know, the heaviest, the quantitatively more numerous alleles um, just through the amplification process and drop out in these kind of null, ar- null allele artifact avenue drop out alleles that are underrepresented or for whatever reason don't um, work as well so we thought we would get better information and also the reading process of the gene lab it's so strongly tied to salmon dna it's a lot of what gets run in alaska is salmon dna and their whole process and database and structure was set up for two alleles per Mm. sample per marker and so This project was very difficult in that our sperm layers were mostly contaminated and it was a lot easier because we essentially ran 2,000 embryos, so 20 embryos over 100 different individual female crab. It was a lot of samples and the extra time and effort it would take to determine whether allele was present or stutter or not. In that trade-off, we decided to run the embryos as individual just in the time savings it would take to limit the results to two alleles per sample per marker. And so in that process, Zach had ran for the same female embryos individually and pooled and got some understanding of how our markers and our allele frequencies and kind of our results specific to our crab samples were performing and help to inform that. So I would say if anything, we had additional work <laughs> been posed just to help us make decisions on how to tackle what we wanted to get done. Um, but all of that was very informative and it's a lot of things that are new, at least in what's available in the published literature. Um, And so I'm very grateful at all that extra time and effort that people in our group put in to make it successful, Um, because it's been a lot, (laughs) more than they expected, more than I expected, and that's part of the process. You don't understand what some of the roadblocks are going to be until you are underway. But it's been really successful, and I'm really grateful that we were able to have the results and kind of work through some of those decision points uh, to really get to our end point. The other point that we hadn't considered up front was if we sampled embryos from our crab early on through the embryo development stage then the interference with the yolk and the dominance of the female DNA, like the detection of the male input to the embryo and the embryo is only 10% of the entire egg is difficult. So we hadn't planned on holding females. So we have the opportunity to collect female crab in the summer months. And so in June and July, shortly after they've extruded a new clutch. So we ended up having to hold those in the lab for months until those embryos were far enough in development to get that DNA signature from the embryo itself and not the the yolk and the female contribution to the egg. Um, So definitely a learning process for what works. Mm I would say the other piece that didn't work as smoothly as we had hoped was we could identify spermatheca layers. And so different ejaculate layers in the spermatheca contributed at different times. There's an aging, a discoloration of that stored sperm that's visible on the paired spermatheca that we process in formalin. And so we had made notes when we processed that paired side that it was like 60% new Fresh layer, 40% old layer. And because the sample preserved in alcohol didn't have that coloration part of it, it's a lot more um, of a desiccated and white sample, very uniform along it. We use the information from the paired side to divide out our layer samples from the spermatheca side. But there was so much contamination between layers that Mm. that division out just was very, not very successful. So um, we worked with the contaminated data and we eventually learned to just pool all. So if we had, if we broke down the contents into two different samples that were processed for genotypes and three different samples that were processed for genotypes, we just collected all the unique alleles across that and worked with that moving forward.
0: Um, do you know how the female crabs keep the sperm viable in their spermatheca?
1: I think that there's a combination of factors. And so the male, when he transfers the ejaculate, it isn't just sperm sperm cells. And the sperm cells are packaged into spermatophores and so mm-hmm. bundled with sperm cells. So it isn't just the spermatophores that are transferred. There's a lot of seminal fluid and um, work that... Has been done with snow crab in Canada, so again that Northwest Atlantic Ocean, they have found that female crab mated in the lab with either adolescent males, which have not terminally molted into adulthood but are still capable of mating, provided less seminal fluid than the females that mated with adult males. And the adult male contributors had more mass for a given estimated sperm cell than the adolescent males did. And so they were transferring more maybe material that could help sustain the sperm over Mm -hmm. a longer storage period. And so nutritive material or whatever was necessary to keep it viable over time. And there's also supposition And a lot of the work that I read comes um, from Bernard St. Marie. He works for DFO, Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada. Uh, He has done a lot of work on snow crab in his career and he's really set a lot of our understanding of the snow crab mating system. So it's been really helpful to have his body of work to reference and to help form some of our hypotheses as to how the Bering Sea population is functioning and and the questions in terms of making sense of the data that we have and so there's also assumptions that the female does have secretions within that come through that epithelial tissue or the epithelial layer in the spermatheca and so maybe she's also contributing to some long-term storage plan for those sperm A lot of this information is conjecture, Uh, not a lot of it has been studied in great detail. I wouldn't say conjecture. I mean, a lot of it comes, it's borrowed from what we know from other crab species, from other systems, other animal systems. Um, And there's assumptions that the same processes hold for Chianocetes, even without direct, investigation of the snow crab itself but that's my understanding of it (laughs) and it's also unknown how long that sperm does last A.J. Paul has done studies on tanner crab here in Alaska he was based out of Seward I believe um, several decades ago he did a lot of mating studies there and holding so some understanding of how long the sperm remain viable. We we know that some of it is lost, like not everything is probably as potent and as active as it is in the year that it was transferred to the female, Um, but that it is even still works after a year. Um, At least that piece has been shown through mating studies. How much longer after that isn't, isn't known. I think that's the other piece that I would mention though. Bernard St. Marie and his various collaborators have looked at this genetics of mating for snow crab in the Canadian populations, um, usually in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so it was really great, again, to have their model of how they set up their questions and their study and what their results were in order to compare those with ours. And Bernard is on my graduate committee and has been a great reviewer and contributor in terms of feedback and ideas when we've had specific questions along the way. just having that resource, even though he's not a team member on the funded project, he's been really helpful. His expertise has guided us along the way, which is really helpful. Yeah, I think one thing I want to not forget is to really thank my funders for making this project possible. Mm -hmm. North Pacific Research Board um, has been really great to work with. And we've also been funded through Fish and Game through grants that we have, including a federal grant bearing sea crab research um, and test fishery money for red king crab. And I'm sure that GeneLab has utilized different Fish and Game funding sources too, because we've spent more time on this project than we had budgeted for through the NPRB funding itself. And so we've been really fortunate in having a number of different funding entities to allow us to spend the time that it took to do this project really well. It's been a good project. It's been a very interesting project. I enjoyed learning what I have. I've enjoyed getting the results and the answers to some of the questions that have been in my mind for several years. Um, It's been very satisfying. And as you said, with the collaborative process, that has also been very enjoyable. I've worked well with everyone on our team, and I've really appreciated what their skill sets are, what their individual expertise is, and... The collaboration of how we've used all of our different strengths um, has been really fun to see um, in action. That's been really satisfying too. Uh, Before we say goodbye, I want to make sure that all of my co-authors on the project um, are acknowledged because without all of the work and dedication that they gave to this project, it wouldn't be successful. So there's myself and William Guyman and Tyler Jackson here in the Kodiak Fish and Game office. And then at the Fish and Game Gene Conservation Lab at Anchorage, there's Wei Cheng, Chris Habicht, Zach Gravigal, um, and at UAF, uh, who is also my graduate advisor. There's Gordon Cruz. And on my graduate committee is Doug Pengilly, who also retired from Fish and Game several years ago. There's been several other collaborators involved to make the project a success over time. And we just really appreciate everyone who's worked on this project. Um, I also want to thank you, Grace, for the opportunity to talk about this and to really just have a chance to get to know you, to learn about your project um, and to, again, share what we encountered as we worked through our project. So thank you very much for this chance to talk and to share.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming on to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Decapod, the podcast dedicated to the Tanner Crab Project funded by NPRB. Check out our website at bittercrab.science for more information.